Uh, good morning, I'm Rachel. I have been attending Gateway all my life. Please join with me as I read Revelations 15. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and, standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and in heaven, the temple that is, the tabernacle of the testimony was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to the passage that we just heard, to Revelation chapter 15. And while you're looking for that, I want to set the stage for what we're looking at today. We have finally made it to the seven bowls of God's wrath. Exciting, right? I was talking to Carol this week. We were laughing together because it's her responsibility to uh, put together kids' coloring pages that correspond with the sermon. So, as you can imagine, like, when we're in a parable series or in the Gospels, it's always great, but can you imagine, like, what she had to do last week? All right, kids, draw a picture of 320 kilometers of blood. Or, all right, kids, here's what we have to do this week. Draw a picture of the bulls of wrath with darkness and blood. Now you're all curious. What did she draw? You don't know. You're not a kid. You don't get to find out. But I think this is not just a problem for kids' coloring pages, it's also a problem for us. That's called a segue, by the way. It's also a problem for us. Because when, when you think about it, what are some of the main objections that we hear with respect to the Christian faith? Isn't it the problem of evil and suffering? Isn't it the concept of a God of wrath? Isn't Aren't these kind of the challenges that we even think about as Christians when we want to share our faith with our unchurched or our unbelieving neighbors? It might cause some fear, some trepidation. They might say something like, oh, you believe in the God of the Bible. Well, if you believe that God exists, then why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? If you believe God is so good, why does he allow evil things to happen? Or they might say something like, oh, the God of the Bible, the wrathful judge who damns people to hell. The, the God of the Bible who unveils the seven bowls of his wrath. And, and so I, I think it's worth it for us just to name it on the front end that Revelation 15 and 16 are brutal, difficult chapters. They're hard chapters for us to understand. 
let alone for unchurched and unbelieving neighbors. And if you read them this week, and I mean like if you really read them, then you probably were a little bit agitated or, or maybe even a little bit concerned. Maybe it made you want to look away or to stop reading or to be filled with a little bit of angst and say, is that really in the Bible? Especially Revelation chapter 16. But here's what I want you to see on the front end. I want you to see that this brutal, grotesque, ugly, bloody chapter of Revelation 15 and Revelation 16 are actually a sign of God's incredible grace if we have the eyes to see it. For those of us who are Christians, when we read this passage, it should fill us with incredible delight and incredible joy. So knowing that this is kind of a difficult passage, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you all my points right on the front end. I want you to kind of marinate in the goodness of where we're going right on the front end so you don't have to guess, we don't have to kind of unveil it at the end, but wait, it's actually good news. I'm going to tell you right on the front. So here's all my points right on the front end, plain main thing, here it is. Number one, God's wrath is rightly poured out on the earth. We're going to look at that first. Number two, but in his mercy... All of it is placed on his son as a substitute for all of your sin. And then we're going to be looking at the distortions that the enemy seeks to create because that's what the book of Revelation is all about in highlighting the throne room of God and how, God wa- and how Satan wants your eyes off the throne room of God. And so what we're going to see, point number three, true worship shapes us and it shapes God's action in the world. So that's where we're going. Now all of you type A folks, you just, you got the notes already, you can sit back, relax, that's where we're going this morning. This is why the concept of God's wrath shouldn't scare the Christian. In fact, it should create a great zeal within us for us to proclaim the good news of the gospel message with those who do not yet know it. And you might say, really? Why? How? The best example that I can think of is this. Let's suppose for a moment that you were an oncologist or a research technician or scientist for cancer research and you devoted your entire life to trying to find a cure. And like the rest of humanity, you hate cancer. You hate the devastation that it causes. And there's many of us in this room who have loved ones who have either died from it or who are struggling with it right now. And you've devoted your entire life to trying to find a cure. But let's suppose after many, many years, you finally discovered the cure. But at exactly that moment, you began to feel a little bit of concern. Because what if the rest of the research community doesn't believe you? What if they start questioning your motives? What if they become agitated by you? What if they even seek to cause you harm on account of the research that you have discovered? And then you have to ask yourself this question. Even in the face of all of that, wouldn't you still share the cure? That wouldn't cause you to hide it under a rug, would it? Would it? And in the same way, that's what this passage does for us too, if we have the eyes to see it. 
There's a lot of bad news on the front end, but it clings to the good news that we find in the person and the work of Jesus. Now, one more note, I think, uh, why it's difficult for us when reading Revelation 15 and 16, but I actually don't think it was very difficult for first century Jewish Christians. I think uh, today, Revelation 15 and 16, we would say is kind of a a concern, like I kind of wish it wasn't in there. I'm a little bit worried about the subject matter and maybe my unchurched and unbelieving friends discovering that this is actually in the Bible. And yet, for the first century Jewish Christian, this was a cause for rejoicing. This was a comfort. This was a balm to a weary soul. And so I think that's why we need to see how context really is king in this. Think about this. If the summation of your life is persecution and hardship and toil and struggle and people coming in and doing injustice towards you, discovering that there is a God of wrath who brings about just judgment in the world is an incredible source of comfort. Isn't it? To finally discover that God is going to make things right. That all the atrocious and terrible things that have been done to you, God is going to work backwards and make sure that all things are redeemed. All things are made right. And that's what this passage is doing. So think about Psalm chapter 13. I have it on the screen for you. This was the heart's cry of the people of Israel. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? So here's what we have to see. Hurt people want relief. Bullied people want salvation, don't they? Victims of harm want justice. Do we really think that right now Ukrainian Christians are saying, you know what, Revelation 15 and 16 are a problem? I don't think so. I think they're looking at Psalm 13, they're looking at Revelation 15 and 16, they're looking at 1 John, they're looking at all these passages that highlight that God is a God of justice and things that are done wrong, he will set right. They see that as a source of comfort in the midst of their afflictions. Indeed, when when we look over the course of human history, first century Jewish Christians saw this as a comfort. Christians in China today see this as a comfort. Christians in Ukraine today see this as a comfort. In Saudi Arabia, in Pakistan, in South Sudan, regardless of, of these places where great persecution is occurring, they see these words as a source of comfort. Indeed, it seems to be only in the suburbs of the West that we see these chapters as a problem. And again, I, I don't mean to undermine your thoughts or to say that they're not valid. I, I just want to convince you that the world is not a great place for justice. And for anyone who's experiencing injustice, they look to the just judgments of God. They want to see those things fulfilled and renewed in their time. And many of us, when we look at these, we struggle with it. And that's why I asked you this question last week. What kind of God would he be if he didn't have just judgment toward those things? I don't think you want an indifferent God. Not really. 
Not when you're dealing with pain and sorrow and torment and people are causing harm toward you. You want a redeemer to step in and to make things right. And if we had the eyes to see everything that God sees, I think we would be praying for everything that Revelation 15 and 16 offers. So much so that then I would probably have to go to Romans 12 and remind you of this. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's what? Help me out. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And so I think it's just helpful to name it on the front end that these chapters might make us a little bit squeamish. They might make us a little bit uncomfortable. But we have to be the kind of community that intentionally looks straight at this chapter so that we can be shaped by it. So that we can be molded by it. And in so doing, we can understand the gospel of God more deeply and who we are as created beings in his likeness. And throughout all of these signs, what we've been learning for the last eight weeks is all of these windows that are pointing to kind of a a so what claim for those of us who are Christians. And finally, we saw it last week, but I want to remind you of it again here. Regarding you in the Great War, you are either following the way of the Lamb or the way of the dragon. And followers of the Lamb are to be heralds of the gospel. There are so many different distractions that are vying for our attention, and yet what this book is highlighting for us, all of Revelation, is to say keep your eyes fixed on the throne room of God where he is sovereign, he is in control, he knows all things, and he will bring about his restoration and his justice toward all things. Toward all things. And if we truly knew that in our heart of hearts, then the conviction of our lives should be to share this message too with those who do not yet know it. So let me just talk to Christians for a second and then to non-Christians. To the Christian, by the end of our time today, I think you should leave this place rejoicing because you will see that Jesus is our substitute. He is our, what scripture says, our propitiation, the one who atones for God's wrath. He has paid for all of your debt. And so here's the good news. There's new mercy for you today. And guess what? Tomorrow, there's more mercy for you. And the next day, even more mercy for you. And for the non-Christian, I would say this. Everything that we're going to be learning about for the next 30, 35 minutes is that you have the opportunity to come out from underneath all of this. That that God has made a way for you through his son Jesus so that you could be set free from all of that and that you could have a life that is filled with hope and with joy and without suffering through Jesus Christ. And so that's what my hope is for us. This is what I've been praying for this week. One more thing that we should look at. We've we've been seeing a series of windows, right? If you look at Revelation 15 verse 1, 
you will see the first two words are, I saw. And every time you read, I looked, or I saw, or I heard, that is a divine window that is being opened up for us to see ultimate reality. That God is on his throne, that he is sovereign over all things. And each of these windows are actually building up the same story. So, um, the second window that we saw was the scroll with a certain number of seals. Could you help me out? How many seals were there? Oh, seven seals. Okay, that's right. And then we saw the trumpets. And how many trumpets were there? Seven. Interesting. And now we're getting to the bowls of God's wrath. And how many bowls are there? Whoa, that's so ironic. Not. Because here's what we know. Seven is the number of completion and wholeness, and so is the number three. So whenever you see three sevens, it means completely, completely, complete. And so each of these windows are building upon each other to tell the same story. In fact, one of the reasons why I'm not going to regurgitate everything in chapter 16 is because we've seen it already with the seven trumpets. They almost perfectly mirror each other. They're almost identical with one another. But here's what we see today. We are going to see the exact same thing from the perspective of heaven. We're going to be looking with God's eyes on how he sees the world in fulfilling his just judgment and in bringing about mercy in the world. And so we get an opportunity to look with God's eyes this morning. So Revelation is constantly trying to show us something we already know in fresh ways, and the seven bowls of God's wrath is basically the story of our human history, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. God made the world, and it was good, but then we fell into sin, and God in his just judgment was bringing about everything to make it right. And he made a way through his son Jesus to save us from his just judgment. And that's the story that we see in the seven bowls of God's wrath. So let's look at the first point. God's wrath is rightly poured out on all the earth. Now here's what I think is really hard for us as Christians today. We think the punishment doesn't fit the crime. We think the punishment doesn't fit the crime. By and large, I think most humans think if it is true that God has wrath and that hell is real, then there is no possible way that the punishment fits the crime. And yet, the Bible wants to talk about that, wants to contend with you about that, and it wants to reveal to you that God's wrath is just and it is real. It is just and it is real. So if you have your Bibles, look at verse 5 with me. Let's look at this again. Chapter 15, verse 5. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven, again, he's, he's looking with heaven's eyes, the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. So here's what we see. 
What we see from this is this is verbatim Numbers chapter 1. The tabernacle of the covenant law is the place in which the kabod, the glory, the presence of God is revealed to God's people and the law exists. Laying out God's righteous rules for how we ought to live for the sake of human flourishing in the world. And if we don't live according to this, then life will begin to break down and to be destroyed. And so this is revealing who God is in his holiness, his righteousness, his his transcendence. But it's also revealing how we ought to live in relationship to him. And so what it's trying to reveal to us is that we fall dangerously short of God's standard. I tried to convince you a couple weeks ago that if there were 7 billion carbon copies of you, the world would still be an evil, vile, corrupt, warmongering place. But I am convinced that many of us are not convinced of that. And that's the the reason why the gospel doesn't compel you It doesn't amaze you. It doesn't perplex you. Because we still have this idea in our mind that what we really need is a little bit of the salvific work of Jesus and a whole lot of my righteous action. And yet what the Bible continues to contend to you is that you are dead to your sin before Jesus and that there's nothing that you can do apart from the work of Jesus coming into your life and changing you from the inside out. It is 100% the work of Jesus. And until we see this, we're always going to wrestle with verses and chapters like Revelation 15 and 16. I think it's one of the reasons why we don't like it very much. Because it puts you in a position where it says, you are not good. You are not good. You are not righteous. You are not moral. And that apart from the work of Jesus, you are dead to sin. But that's the vision that we see here. And if we don't see this, the gospel will not compel us. And I think if we stay in this position, it's kind of like being an infant who is bathed, clothed, fed, changed poopy diapers, burped, farts, all that kind of stuff, all just cared for by a loving father, and then at the end of the day still saying, Look at me and everything that I've done. Isn't it interesting to think about how we sometimes abuse the common grace of God in order to spit on his salvific grace? We abuse the common grace of God in order to spit on the salvific grace of God. We say, look at me and all the things that I've done. Look at my morality. Look at my kindness. Look at my righteous deeds. And yet what the Bible says and what our confessions tell us is apart from the intervening work of the Holy Spirit, no one would choose Jesus. We would all turn away from him. We would all run in the opposite direction. And there will come a day in which God separates himself from those who have not chosen him and it's called hell not because there's literal fire or literal brimstone, but because outside of the presence of God, you lose the beauty and the glory and the transcendence of all things good. Imagine what your life would be apart from the presence of God. We have to have that vision and that idea in our mind. 
But if you are still unconvinced that the world would be a terrible place even if it was seven billion carbon copies of you, and even if you still consider yourself to be a moral person, I think the thing that we have to recognize is that God is not judging you over and against your neighbor, Bob, or Sally. What he's doing is he's comparing you to his holiness and his righteousness and his transcendence. And from that, we see that we all fall dangerously short of the glory of God. God's holiness decimates and destroys all unrighteousness. Look at this passage with me, Nahum chapter one. It gives a vision for this. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt away, the earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. And so here's what it's saying. Anything that is perverse, anything that is unholy, anything that is unrighteous, anything that refuses to acknowledge his holiness, it melts away in his presence. It's not that God is actively being angry and wrathful and mean toward you. His sheer holiness, the sheer presence of God melts away unholiness. We need to have that vision in our mind. And so here's, here's another way that we do this. One of the ways that we rebel against God is by looking at this book and acting like we're smarter than it. Showing up to a passage like Revelation 15 and 16 say, oh, God's wrath, oh, gross. Oh, God's righteous rules, Mm, not for me. An old, antiquated book that was written 2,000 years ago. It has no application for our lives today or I would do things differently. I might have written that part a little bit differently. But, but here's the thing that we have to see. God is the infinite creator of the universe. And you burn breakfast. We've got to have some perspective here to see God for who he is. He is holy and righteous. And the reason why I'm spending a little bit more time on this is because I am convinced that the only way that the gospel is going to amaze us, compel us, and turn us into a puddle of tears that is filled with rejoicing is if we can see the predicament for what it truly is. The only way that we are going to celebrate the cure is if we have a good understanding of the ailment. And I think one of the reasons why the gospel is slowly diminishing in the West is because we have no taste and no interest whatsoever in talking about God's wrath. And when we do that, we also have no appetite for God's love and his salvation over and against those things. They come hand in hand. And so we have to understand the predicament that we were in prior to the work of Jesus and then the gospel will compel us. So here's what scripture says. Romans chapter one, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of the people. That's Revelation 15 right there. In a nutshell, we are seeing in new, fresh ways Romans chapter one. People who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. We are without excuse. God has made himself knowable. God can be known. But here's the good news leading to the second point. God's wrath is rightly poured out on the earth, but in his mercy, all of it, all of it is placed on his son as a substitute for your and my sin. So here's what this means. No one is under the wrath of God except those who choose to be. No one is under the wrath of God except those who choose to be. I shared this quote with you last week from C.S. Lewis, but it bears repeating here because this is the principle. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell or the concept of wrath in general is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? He has done so on Calvary. What then? To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. That's what hell is. So let me ask you a question. By a show of hands, who here knows John chapter 3, uh, verse 16? John 3, 16. It's a very familiar verse, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. And then verse 17 continues in the theme, recognizing that we are not under condemnation. He did not come into the world to condemn us, but to save us through him, through Jesus Christ. And yet here's what's so interesting. We look at verses 16 and 17 and we say, how do we get from all this love to wrath? Well, that's just verse 19, the verse that we often Overlook the one that never makes its way onto our mugs or our t-shirts or the back of our cars. But verse 19 says this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And so the wrath of God is revealed because we suppress the truth of God. We suppress the truth of God. God, he comes, he gives us mercy, he gives us a new fresh start, and then we run off in the opposite direction. We say, I want nothing to do with you, God. I don't want any part with you, God. And so here's what we have to see. It's not as though God is some distant, far-off, cosmic judge who says, I'm just going to wipe you all out because you have fallen into sin. No, no. What he's saying is, I am just and holy and righteous and apart from the blood of the lamb, standing in my presence would cause you to melt away. Think about those verses in the Bible in in which just an angel, which is a pale reflection of the radiance of the glory of God the Father, even the presence of an angel causes human beings to fall down in the fetal position in which they were dead. Could you imagine being in the presence of a holy and magnificent God? 
just like Nahum chapter 1, we would melt away in his presence. And then I want you to see the element of Revelation, of the book of Revelation that we've been talking about for the last eight weeks. The vision of the throne room of God and how Satan wants by any means possible to take your eyes away from that, to divert your attention so that he can pull you down with him. So how do we defend ourselves against that? And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning, and that is revealed in the first four verses. So look at Revelation 15, 1 to 4. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. That's good news, Christians. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beasts and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring about glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. These four verses are critical to understanding how we ought to respond in the midst of the uncertainty, the complexity, and the challenges of our lives. I love the way that Eugene Peterson frames these two chapters in his book, Reverse Thunder. He says this, Worship provides the context for the paradoxical simultaneities of believing in justice while also experiencing injustice. The long-delayed but now imminent judgment takes shape in an act of worship. Seven angels of judgment get ready for their work, hear this, while the congregation sings a hymn. There is enough to bring to mind the awesome position in which we find ourselves as saved people set down in a dangerous world. And we saw a vision of this just about 10 days ago when a video went viral in Ukraine of Ukrainian Christians underground in a subway trying to protect themselves from bombs that were being dropped below just above their heads And what are they doing? They're singing hymns. They're worshiping Jesus. They've caught a vision of this. They've seen it with their own eyes. They are so compelled by the gospel that they understand what biblical scholars call the already but the not yet. They're able to worship God, to see the throne room of God for what it truly is, even in the midst of injustice. Even in the midst of not war-like times, war. Their lives are being torn apart, and here's what they see. They see the beauty of God, and that's what Revelation 15 and 16 are to do to us. 
they perfectly mirror Deuteronomy chapter 32 when the people of Israel are in the wilderness. And so they're in that already but not yet moment as well. They're in the wilderness and yet they're anticipating entering into the land of promise. They have no food to eat except for manna and yet they're anticipating a land that is flowing with milk and with honey. They're experiencing God's just judgments and yet they see the mercy of God laid out before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night as they travel through the wilderness and go to the land of promise. They're in the already but the not yet and that's our lives too. We see that in one sense we're dead to sin. But at exactly the same time, we're alive in Christ. In one sense, we see that we are sinners, but at the same time, we are saved by Jesus. In one sense, we see that we are experiencing the wrath of God, but at exactly the same time, we see that Jesus has paid the way through his blood. This is the already, but the not yet. This is the vision that God wants us to have even in the midst of the seven bowls of just judgment. The seven bowls of wrath. And so here's the question that I want to ask you this morning. How do Christians defend themselves against the distortions of the enemy? The one who's constantly trying to divert your attention away from his throne and toward false thrones? Here's how we do it. Through worship through worship. Really? Yes. I shared with you a couple of times already that the most significant divine window that we see in the book of Revelation is the throne room of God. Everything else is supplemental to that one, along with the seven bowls of God's wrath. And so here's the claim. The great claim is this. God is sovereign on his throne. He is in full and complete control. He will rule and reign with equity and with justice for all times and in all places and all creation will worship under his feet. And I've spent eight weeks trying to convince you that if Christians in Canada knew this, they would not be filled with so much angst, so much worry, or so much doubt because we would be able to see God for who he truly is even in the midst of our struggles even in the midst of our pain. And Gateway, I want to convince you that Christians are made for this. We're made for moments just like this when the rest of the world sees pandemics and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and fires and floods and social unrest and all the rest. They say, problems! And they feel the earth shaking under their feet. And yet Christians, we look at all of that and do you know what we do? We sing a hymn. And the world thinks it's ridiculous. But at exactly the same time, it draws them in. Because this is what they're looking for too. I shared with you already that if we want to be the kind of community that is marked by the gospel, then we have to look straight into these chapters. We have to let them form us 
and shape us so that we can see the world rightly for what it is and so that our enemy Satan doesn't get a foothold in our life. So I want to share with you just two ways the enemy seeks to create distortions in our life. Here's the first one. The first main distortion is when we abandon worship and suppress the truth. When we abandon worship and suppress the truth. I think one, ways, one of the things that we have to recognize is you can understand why both Christians and non-Christians don't see the point in worshiping on Sunday mornings if they're not captivated by this reality of being in the already but the not yet, recognizing that God is sovereign over all things. Because it, it kind of feels like uh, being a firefighter who's looking at a burning building and we have the hose in our hands and then in, instead of turning the water on and shooting the water on the house, we just kneel down and start praying. And the whole world looks at that and says, point the water at the house and start putting water on it. There's a fire that's burning. Get going. There's angst. There's urgency. We got to move toward this. And if we don't see this vision, that's how we're always going to feel. We're always going to feel like we can do more. Something needs to change. we got to become social activists. Things have to take part in our lives. And yes, we have to do those things. But the most important thing that Christians do is worship. Because it orients our hearts. It shapes our lives to understand rightly what God is doing in the world. And so we don't become people who are filled with angst. We just are people who rightly see what God is doing and we join him in that effort. But it always, always starts with worship. But another way that we do this is by suppressing the truth. And maybe this is one of the ways that non-Christians, but Christians too, do this from time to time. When we feel a great angst in our own life about maybe some past decisions that we've made or mistakes we keep making and we think to ourselves, oh, that, that wasn't right. I gotta change that, I gotta stop doing that. But then we fill it with placebos. And it's different for all of us, isn't it? Maybe it's an addiction to your work. Maybe it's alcohol or drugs. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's just watching Netflix endlessly until it reminds you, are you still watching? And you click yes. Maybe it's just scrolling through your apps anything that you can do to desensitize yourself and to not think about the problems that are laid out before you. But here's what God is doing. He's trying to bring you out of those things for you to see rightly the great issues that are happening in your life, but for him to say, there's mercy for you here. Come under the umbrella of my care. Come out from under the wrath of God. I have mercy for you here. And we say, oh, I don't don't really want to do that. And we keep scrolling through our phones. But here's the second way we do this. This this first example might be kind of preaching to the choir because most of you are here. You're, You're worshiping with us here. But here's something that might pinch a little bit more that we see in this chapter. The second distortion that Satan tries to create in our life is through subverting worship. Subverting worship. Undermining worship. And how do we do that, Justin? Here's one of the practical ways that we might undermine worship. We show up on a Sunday morning. We sing songs. We hear a sermon. We recite scripture passages. 
And then immediately afterwards, we go out into the lobby, we grab some coffee, we find some friends, and we start complaining about the very music we just sang. That's one of the ways that we subvert worship. It didn't feed me. It didn't speak to me. I didn't really like that one. Well, here's, here's the issue, and I, I want to say this as humbly as I can. If we were worshiping you this morning, that would be a problem. But last I checked, we're not. And if we're worshiping King Jesus, the only question we should ever ask ourselves is this. Did the worship serve to elevate our conscience, our mind, and activate our emotions for us to see God for who he truly is? And if it didn't do that, then we should join in the effort and say, how how can we make this better? How can we do a better job of this? But that's one of the ways that we subvert worship. Here's one final way we do this. It might be the complete opposite. I know this is kind of weird to say as a pastor of a local church. It might sound like I'm trying to push you away, but there might even be some people here who are guests this morning who've left their previous church because the church you came from wasn't filling your needs. The preaching wasn't to the quality that you like. The programs didn't fit that you like so much. And so again, that's another way that we subvert worship. And I get it, if we treat churches the same way that we treat McDonald's chains, like maybe there's one McDonald's in town that has fresher food, better service, and lower prices. Of course you're gonna go there. But, but again, this isn't McDonald's. And so we have to reconsider even our very motives for why we attend worship in the first place. That's like what we see in Luke chapter 15. The younger brothers probably represented more in the first point. Abandoning worship, suppressing the truth, running off, reckless living. But then he comes home to a benevolent and merciful father. But the elder brother, he stays home. He complies. But he has no interest in the beauty and the glory and the transcendence of God. He just wants his stuff. And at the end of the story, he's the one who's outside of the party. And so I beg of you, Gateway, allow us to have our hearts that are oriented toward the throne room of God, always looking to him and to his glory and to his beauty, because that's what it's all about, for his glory. And here's the final point, and we're going to close in just a couple minutes. God's wrath is rightly poured out on the earth, but in his mercy... All of it is placed on his son as a substitute for your sin and true worship shapes us and shapes God's action in the world. So here's the question I want to ask you. Do you want to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven? Do you want to see marriages restored? Do you want to see a greater impact for God's kingdom in our community? Do you want to see lives changed? Do you want to see kids discipled? Do you want to see people brought up in the love and the service of the Lord? All of it is centered around worship and seeing God for who he truly is. And then it ends this way. Revelation 16, verse 17. Look there with me. This is how these two chapters end. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne of God saying, it is done. Now ponder with me for a second. Where have we heard that before? It is done. It is complete. It is finished. 
John 19. Jesus is on the cross. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. There's the image of Revelation 14 in the wine press. And so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So listen, Gateway, here's the good news. Every single day, there is new mercy for you. Tomorrow, there's new mercy for you. And the day after that, there's new mercy for you. And so I want to I pray over you right now. I just invite you to bow your head and close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that. And I want to give you some time to contemplate what we just heard by asking yourself a couple of questions. Here's the first question I want you to consider. Are you living out of a confidence that the creator is in control of your life? Are you living out of a confidence that the creator of the universe is in control of your life? And here's the second question I want you to consider. Are you living out of a confidence that God sees you right now? He knows you and he loves you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your son and our rescuer, Jesus. We thank you that your just and right wrath was poured out not on us, but on your son as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We ask, Lord, that we would have the eyes to see all that you have done for us and that we would rejoice. Lord, give us a vision, the same vision that our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine in that subway had, knowing that you are sovereign and in control even in the moment of struggle and war and turmoil and pain. Help us to see that today too as we sing your praises now. Amen.